Yo, let me tell you a story real quick about one of my partners, about, about this cat I know, one of my homeboys, and we just gonna call him Junior. Yeah. Okay, meanwhile, Junior's doing his thing and living up to his full potential, but the, but the haters, and I don't even want to call him that because they're worse than that, but he's becoming a, a victim of the monster, you know, the, the machine, the revolving door. It's, it's them that's got versus them that can't get, and they ain't gonna never get. Junior had it good. Junior had it good. Hello and welcome to episode 1507 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing well. There's there's banging in construction land next to my house. Can't escape the various schemes. There are no banging scheme reprieves for me. Ubiquitous banging everywhere we look (laughs) and listen. (laughs) Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So we've got a season preview pod lined up today. I think this is our eighth. Is this our eighth? We're we're right around the halfway point of the series, which every season reminds me of how many teams there are. It always kind of <laughs> takes me by surprise. I know there are 30 teams, but when we actually start doing the team preview series and it goes on and on and on, it uh, kind of drives home just how much baseball there is. But I think this will be the day that marks our getting past the halfway point and then we will be closing in on opening day. So today we are bringing you the New York Mets with Tim Britton of The Athletic, followed by the Blue Jays with Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet. So just a couple of things I meant to mention before we get there. One is juiced ball watch in spring training. We got the first prominent comment by a pitcher talking about what the ball feels like this year. Zach Eflin of the Phillies says that the baseball feels better to him. He says, I think it's awesome. To me, they feel a little softer, and you can definitely notice the seams a little more. Last year, it was like throwing a cue ball. And I wouldn't put too much stock in this because it's not always apparent from spring training how the ball will behave once the season starts. There is a correlation between the league-level spring training stats and the league-level regular season stats. And generally, I do an article at the end of every spring training trying to forecast what the offensive rates will look like based on spring training. But last year, for instance... The home run rate in spring training wasn't down, so it was clear that the ball hadn't really been dejuiced, but it was not clear that it had been juiced even more and that we were going to start seeing even more homers. So I don't know that we can conclude anything from this. I think there may be a mix of baseball models in use in spring training. And of course, who knows when they're going to introduce a new one that could happen at any point. But this is at least one little indication that at least one person thinks the ball will perhaps fly a little less far this year. You know, we've been so preoccupied with all of the sign-stealing stuff that I think that we have not paused to think for a minute about how wild it is that this is a question, <laughs> yeah. that this is a pending open question of what kind of ball we're getting. It remains deeply wild. <laughs> it's just the most important piece of equipment on the field. And we're like, what's it going to be? What is its character? <laughs> Who are you this year, ball? Did you come back from your exploits in the off season with like a funny accent? You know, it's like when you go abroad and you come back sounding vaguely British. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We haven't gotten to know the character of this baseball and that's wild (laughs) right i know and because we know the ball can fluctuate on every pitch every ball 
by a great degree that can really control how far it goes. That's something that I think, like, if you're worried about sign stealing making you feel like the game is less legitimate or that certain pitches are not on the level or something, I I think they almost go hand in hand because it's like, can you trust the results if teams are stealing signs? But also, can you trust the results if the ball is varying by that much from week to week or from ball to ball for that matter? And we can actually quantify that now. It's uh, it's part of that sort of sense of unreality or in- inability to believe in the product, I think. <sighs> Man, we're just going to – we're going to get past the banging. Well, not in my immediate physical vicinity because this could go on for a while. But um, we're going to get past the banging and we're going to take a deep breath and we're going to feel good. And then we're going to get ball funkiness and we're going to feel <laughs> funky again. Yep. Just want to feel – unfunked that's not a word but (laughs) there we go (laughs) yeah speaking of the banging or the cheating or the sign stealing i wrote something about that for the ringer this week that looks at time between pitches as sort of a proxy for when teams may have caught on to what the astros were doing because jonathan lucroy came out with some comments to espn last week where he said Yeah, I knew about this in 2018. We were already switching up our signs. And granted, he was with the A's then. He was a teammate of Mike Fires, and Fires told him about the cheating when he was traded to Oakland in August. But I think he said that the suspicions were more pervasive, that this was spreading around the game. And you can go back and look, and Lucroy cited a particular start in August of 2018. Edwin Jackson was on the mound, and it was just interminable. It was like 28 seconds between pitches, even with the bases empty. And Jackson is a slow worker to begin with, but this was his slowest working start ever. And it was like, you know, 10 to 20 second sign sequences with all sorts of indicators. And I have some clips and gifs in my article of Lucroy going through that. But it wasn't just the A's and Lucroy and Jackson. It was also the Angels who had some outlier starts. And really, when I looked league-wide, there was an indication that in 2018, certainly, pitchers were working more slowly against Astros batters than they were against other teams. And that's true even if you compare the same pitchers versus Astros batters and non-Astros batters. And it was particularly true in Minute Maid Park, as one would expect, because I think that was where the paranoia was at its highest. So that's just an added cost to the sign stealing, regardless of how much effect you think it has on the competitive integrity of the game. There's also some slowdown, and there's just dead air as catchers are cycling through signs, and that's no fun for anyone. And it seems like that reached its height in late 2018, like August and September. There was a really noticeable difference in how long pitchers were taking between pitches to Astros batters. And ironically, that may have been around the time when the Astros had already stopped stealing signs, at least based on what we know. And so in this one plate appearance I was picking out in my article, it was Carlos Correa was up with no one on. And at that point in 2018, the banging scheme was over seemingly. And so maybe the replay room scheme was still going on, but that relied on a runner being on second to pass the signs to the hitter. And there was no runner there. So it seems unlikely that Correa had the signs, but there was just so much suspicion about it at that point that I think players were just operating under the assumption that the Astros always had their signs. And so they had to defend themselves accordingly, which didn't really show up in the data in 2017, which is when the sign stealing was at its height. But 
I think like Lucroy noted that he didn't notice the banging when he played in Houston. And then even in the World Series, Clayton Kershaw said recently that he was not using multiple signs in the World Series, that he should have been, that he regrets not doing that, but maybe was just kind of complacent because it's disruptive for a pitcher to have to do that. So it's definitely a departure from the routine that I think players were reluctant to do until they felt like they absolutely had to. I'm curious what the sort of hangover effect of that stuff is going to be in terms of players' insistence on cycling, even though, as far as we know, there isn't an active method of cheating being deployed. Because I remember in this past postseason, James Paxton had a start at Minute Maid, and he they were cycling through signs with no one on base very early in that game. And, you know, that was the one when we noted that internally at Fangraphs, I think we had wondered, like, maybe we should like go to Houston and see if we can sort something out and perhaps we won't find anything and these will be very expensive tacos. And uh, and then obviously there was like actual reporting done that <laughs> revealed all of the scandal. But I, I don't think that there is a ton of trust that things are sort of on the level when it comes to Astros hitters, even though the commissioner wasn't able to find any evidence that there's been uh, cheating that has persisted past the the banging scheme and code breaker. So mm-hmm. I don't know how long it's going to take for guys to look around and say, I feel comfortable just going with you know my usual array of signs. I, I suspect that the slowdown will persist because even if they don't know that there's cheating going on. We're all going to wonder now. You can't. It's hard to to prove that it's not. So I right. think pitchers will continue to be suspicious and perhaps a bit paranoid. And I'm going to be curious to see what the interplay is there because, you know, after a while, I'm still get annoyed and are like, hey, go. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, well, I'm worried right. about buzzers and banging and telepathy and all sorts of <laughs> stuff. So... Yeah, it does support what we've heard and what's been reported about the fact that teams were complaining to MLB about this before MLB really took action and and certainly launched a public investigation into it. And so players were kind of left to their own devices and they had to protect themselves. And that was happening before the public at large knew and before MLB really did anything about it. But it does show up in that pitcher pace data, which is pretty intriguing. So I will link to that if anyone wants to check it out. Other than that, all I have to say is pitchers, stay healthy out there. Yeah, it's, man. it's dangerous right now. This is kind of peak getting hurt in spring training time. I talked in the outro the other day about Luis Severino's injury, which happened after you and I spoke, but there have been a couple developments since that Chris Sale probably won't be ready for opening day, which Red Sox are claiming is not elbow-related, but is pneumonia-related and late start to spring-related. Cleveland reliever Emmanuel Classe, the centerpiece of the Corey Kluber trade, he strained a back muscle, maybe out for two or three months. And then most recently, this is one that could be kind of crushing. This was just reported shortly before we started recording so we don't have details as we speak but Griffin Canning of the Angels felt something in his elbow after his start on Wednesday and he is now scheduled to get an MRI on his elbow which oh boy it's one thing not to have added pitching to this offseason but then to lose Canning that would really be pretty devastating because when we did our Angels preview and we talked to Fabian and I asked like okay who in this rotation could really step up he mentioned Canning yeah Canning was pretty good last year and man if they lose Canning 
Whew, that would be tough and just piles on to the litany of injuries and elbow injuries specifically that the Angels have endured over the past few years. And there were concerns about Canning's elbow in the draft. I think that's part of why he wasn't picked in the first round. And then he had some elbow issues last year too. So this isn't coming out of nowhere, but losing him would be a big blow. Yeah, I feel like he was the guy who a lot of people looked at and thought, you know, there might be some upside in this rotation. And if they can get some good starts, I still think that, you know, uh, an Andrew Heaney, Dylan Bundy rotation taking Mike Trout back to the postseason is like a, (laughs) that's a feel good story, but it feels like an unlikely story. So I'd prefer that Griffin be fine and help them out and just uh, make it a little easier for our favorite center fielder to play Mm -hmm. October baseball again. Yes, indeed. Last thing I have to say is that I saw a report that Ruben Amaro Jr. may be returning to the Phillies, sort of, in that he is taking a position with NBC Sports Philadelphia, in which he would be doing studio analysis for pregame and postgame shows. And that just made me reflect on how unusual a trajectory (laughs) Ruben Amaro Jr. has had over the past decade. Like, I would read a book about Ruben Amaro Jr.'s life since 2008 or so because he was hired or promoted to be GM of the Phillies coming off of their world championship. And then the Phillies were great for a few years after that. And then they fell off a cliff and declined very quickly. And Amaro got a lot of the blame for that. And by the time he was fired, the Phillies were terrible and he was sort of a punchline. And then he goes from being GM. So GM of the best team in baseball, maybe to one of the worst teams to then his first base coach phase, which is like, no one does that. No one does GM to first base coach. So he did first base coaching for the Red Sox for a couple of years and then with the Mets for a season, right? And then I think he transitioned to a front office advisor role with the Mets maybe. And then now is covering the Phillies, not running the Phillies, but talking about them on pre and post game shows, which I guess is similar to maybe what Ned Coletti was doing with the Dodgers because he was a GM and then he became like a studio person, which is odd. It must be a weird feeling to go from the person and like making all the decisions to then talking about it. And I guess both of those guys sort of fit into an earlier era of baseball executives a little bit better than they do now. But it's a really odd and interesting trajectory. And for him to go back to the field and take one of the less glamorous coaching positions I kind of admired it. I was just watching an interview with him where he was talking about why he wanted to do that. And it was just like, well, he really loves baseball and he's been around baseball his whole life and was in the clubhouse growing up because his dad was playing and then he was playing. And I think it appealed to him just going back to the field level and suiting up again and being around the team and the players. So it's kind of nice that he wasn't like, hey, I've been a GM. I'm going to turn up my nose at this coaching opportunity. He sought it. He wanted to do it. I think Dave Dabrowski hired him because he read that Amaro was looking for coaching openings. Yeah, I think that there is in a field that can generally and certainly lately be marked by hubris. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's nice to see a guy just be like, I really love baseball and... uh I'm not above this. I just want to engage with the sport however I can. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a, it is a very, I can't think of another trajectory quite like it. So I, I also would read a book about that. That would be neat. 
The other oddity about Amaro is that he is a recurring character on the ABC sitcom The Goldbergs, which what? <laughs> I'm not sure if you're aware of that. No. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> like, he appears on The Goldbergs sometimes, but also Ruben Amaro Jr. is a character on The Goldbergs. Because Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> so he he himself as a as an acting human yes. as like an actor type is like on this show, and then his actual. <laughs> A uh, human person is a is a known entity in in the show, but it, he is not playing himself. Right. I don't know if this is less strange or more strange, but he plays his dad on the show. What? Ruben Amaro Jr. plays Ruben Amaro Sr. <laughs> on the Goldbergs. I just need two more volunteers. I can help. No. Sorry, Ruben Amaro Sr. I didn't mean to yell, but sit down. But my son loves that trip. And we love Ruben Amaro Jr., Ruben Amaro Sr., but this committee is ladies only. He just like makes occasional cameos as Ruben Amaro Sr., but Ruben Amaro Jr. is like a regularly recurring minor character on the show because the show is set in Philadelphia in the 80s, and Ruben Amaro was a prominent young athlete at the time. And so I, I think that uh, Amaro like went to the same school as the producer whose own upbringing the show is based on. And so it's just a character. And I think every time he is mentioned on the show, he is mentioned according to his full name, Ruben Amaro Jr. And also the actor who plays Ruben Amaro Jr. on the show is Nico Gordado, who is the son of everyday Eddie Gordado. So it's just like... Wow. One of the strangest baseball stories. So this would be a great chapter in the Ruben Amaro Jr. memoir. Wow. So this is like this is like when Madonna appears in films and then her music <laughs> is playing in the background. Yeah, sort of like that. Wow. <laughs> and and also, does the family are they a baseball family in the show? Like what how is there so much opportunity? <laughs> <laughs> for any generation of Ruben Amaros to be in the show. Like, is it just like he's like on TV doing like a news I, conference? I don't watch regularly, so I couldn't wow. tell. Maybe he, it's because he went to the school of one of the characters. That could, But he's been in 19 episodes of the Goldbergs. Wow. Ruben Amaro Jr., that is the fictional oh <laughs> Ruben my Amaro gosh. Jr., Ruben Amaro Sr., Wait, <laughs> Ruben Amaro Jr. playing <laughs> Ruben Amaro Sr. He has not been in as many episodes. He's been in only two uh, 2018 episodes. So, <laughs> wow. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's just one of the more through the looking glass yeah. trajectories in the sport right now. So, man. Yeah. That's, that's wild. Someone give Ruben a book deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we can take a quick break now and we'll be back with Tim Britton to talk about the Mets. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Spring your kitties, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really socking the ball, knocking those home runs right over the wall. East side, west side. Everybody's coming down to meet the M-E-T-S Mets of New York Town Solo. All right, it is time to talk about the New York Mets, which is always an adventure. And to do that this year, like last year, we are joined by Tim Britton, who covers the Mets for The Athletic. Hello, Tim. 
I guess. What's going on? Well, our general plan here is to cover some of the off-the-field storylines and then circle toward the field. I guess it's ambitious to assume that you can even separate those things with the Mets and that you can just talk about the baseball without talking about all the other things that surround the baseball. But let's try to start farthest away from the field, and then maybe we'll get closer as we go. So the failed sale over the winter to Steve Cohen. What's your understanding of what sabotaged that? Whose fault was it if it was someone's fault? And for Mets fans who are sick of the Wilpons, should they be disappointed that this didn't happen or hopeful that something better will happen? Yeah, I mean, my, my understanding of, of what fell through there was that, you know, they, they kind of came to terms on, on an agreement in which the Wilpons would have some control over the franchise over the five-year period over a five-year period while Steve Cohen paid a lot of money up front. And I think Steve Cohen thought that was going to be very much of a, a figurehead idea, whereas, where he would have the actual say in things, and the Wilpons did not view it that way. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there was kind of a, a mix-up in communication uh, where Cohen assumed it was one way and the Wilpons kind of uh, adhered to the letter of the deal. A mix-up of communication with the Mets? I know. Incredible how me. that happens every once in a while. Yeah. And so at, at this point, you know... The, the Mets are for sale. The Wilpons looking to sell and and not as rigid in wanting to have a kind of five-year transition period, which, you know, when, when that news of that deal came out in December was always kind of a weird sticking point. We've seen transitions before in ownership, but five years is a long period of time and they were getting a lot of money up front from Steve Cohen. So their willingness to sell and to cede control more immediately is probably still good news for Mets fans, but uh, at least Mets fans who don't want the Wilpons, which I think is a large majority <laughs> there of any them. other kind? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, no one really knows at this point who is going to emerge as a buyer, whether Steve Cohen, you know, our, our business reporter Dan Kaplan at, at The Athletic reported uh, that, you know, kind of the, the specter of Steve Cohen still haunts these negotiations because he put up such a large bid, $2.6 billion, for what was, an, what was an imperfect amount of control at that point, whether anyone else will outbid that number, and if they don't, whether Cohen comes back into the fold. So uh, I think that's a story that's going to be kind of on the in the in playing on in the background of the Mets season, but like you said, doesn't impact the on-field stuff as much this year, but is, is still the biggest story about the franchise moving forward. I guess the other big story <laughs> is that despite not getting a World Series win from the bargain, the Mets did get embroiled in the Astro sign stealing scandal. I'm curious, we can kind of take this a couple of different ways. Obviously, they were enthusiastic about hiring Carlos Beltran. They seemed very sad to see him go. But Luis Rojas has been a minor league manager and a quality control coach. I'm curious what his relationship with Brody and the front office is like, and whether the Mets may have mistaked their way into a better managerial hire by uh, first going with Beltran, but then getting to bring on Rojas. Yeah, I think you can make a case that that Rojas is more qualified for the managerial position than Beltran was, given the decade of experience he had in the minor leagues, the familiarity he has with a lot of the players on this roster in particular. You know, he was the quality control coach last year in the major leagues. So almost everyone on this Mets roster has worked with Louis Rojas in some capacity. You know, what they liked about Beltran maybe more so than Rojas was clearly a bigger splash, which is something that the Mets tend to think about. And I think they liked his ability to handle the media. You know, he'd been a star player for a long time, and in this market, he understood what it was like to talk to reporters on a regular basis, if not the twice-a-day, every-day basis that a manager does. Uh, And then 
Beltron went out and didn't handle the media particularly well right after the the Astros sign stealing scandal broke. Uh, and, you know, the instant credibility that a player of his stature would bring into the clubhouse was compromised by his involvement there. So I, I thought, you know, they really couldn't continue with Beltron. And, and that was a, you know, I know a lot of Mets fans thought at the time in January that they could get through that with him. And I think now everyone agrees that they made the right decision to, to move forward without him. And in Rojas, they have a guy, like I said, has the familiarity with the roster, has the respect of the clubhouse. It's really just a matter of what's he going to be like on a day to day basis can he handle the media spotlight in a way that Mickey Calloway struggled with often in his two years here? Uh, and can he be enough of his own presence uh, outside of the ownership and the general manager, Brody Van Wagen? And, like they, they have a good relationship right now, but uh, can he be his own independent presence? Because I think there was a lot of thought with Calloway that he was saying things, he, you know, he had to be kind of the mouthpiece of the front office or of ownership uh, in a way that is difficult for a manager to do. And, and Rojas, I think, needs to be independent and his own guy, his own authentic guy uh, to succeed here uh, the way they hope. Yeah, everyone has a good relationship in February, right? Um, <laughs> I'm curious that, you know, obviously Beltran wasn't the only guy from that 2017 Astros team that is part of the Mets organization now. And I'm curious what camp has been like for guys like Jake Marisnik and J.D. Davis, who are both on that team. What has the clubhouse response to those guys been? And how has the team sort of managed the distraction? Obviously, as as Astros-related distractions go, those guys are probably pretty low on the list. But what has the effect been for them in spring? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say there's been anything discernible. Uh, there's like no real tension there. And I think, first of all, with Davis, it's different than with Marisnik because Davis was here last year. He played sure. he was a smaller bit player on the 2017 Astros as well uh, and didn't play particularly well for them. And, you know, he bonded in the clubhouse last year. He's one of the most outgoing guys in that clubhouse, has a lot of friends and had a breakout season. So I don't, I don't think there was any any real chance that, pe that players would turn on him for his part in it. Marisnik has to kind of earn that credibility over the course of the season. You know, not only did he play more for the 2017 Astros, that is his career best season and sparked mainly by eye-opening home road splits. His home OPS was greater than 1,000. The rest of his career, the OPS is about 650. You know, I, I dug into the numbers with the help of the sign-stealing website. And, you know, Marisnik was having a good season at home even before they started banging on trash cans. But still, it renders some of that success a little bit questionable in retrospect. So I think, you know, there, there hasn't been any clubhouse tension, but certainly Marisnik has to do a little bit more than Davis does to earn the trust in that room because he got more out of it in 2017. Speaking of the clubhouse, the clubhouse itself briefly became a story this spring training because the team showed up and writers showed up and, hey, the place is remodeled and new clubhouse looks great. And then we found out that the Mets will not be letting their minor leaguers use that clubhouse during the regular season when it's their home park because they've got to earn it and they're just bush leaguers and they don't deserve to have nice things. What I wasn't clear on really was what exactly the condition of the clubhouse for the minor leaguers is, and did that get remodeled also, or are they just sticking them in some hole somewhere underground, or <laughs> are they going to reconsider that policy given the strong response to it? They're, they're just changing on the bus this year, I think. No, um, the, the minor league clubhouse is also new and remodeled. They, the Mets, their complex in Port St. Lucie, they basically renovated the entire wing where the players are. New weight mm -hmm. room, whole new clubhouse, new meeting rooms and all that. So the, the major league clubhouse is very nice. It's just as nice as the City Field clubhouse, but bigger because there's more players and more lockers and all that. Uh, the minor league clubhouse is nice and new. It's just small. Uh, it's about the same size as you would see for minor league clubhouses in 
you know, the ones I've been in at in A ball, double A, triple A, most of them are not particularly large. Uh, and this one follows suit. So yeah, it, it seems if you have the room, why not use it? I don't know what happens when a if there's ever a major leaguer rehabbing there, if he just dresses <laughs> in this massive clubhouse by himself right. while 24 teammates get, get dressed in a, a more cramped room down the hall. It seems like you, you should probably use that space if you have it, but mm-hmm. I'm not the one making those decisions. I swear we're going to move on to actual baseball stuff in a second here, but we I do have one more. This was sort of a smaller story that got lost among all the other uh, off-season stories, but this winter the team let go of a couple of analysts that they'd brought in just a year prior in part-time or consulting roles. And I'm curious if this is just usual front office churn, you know, people come and go every year, or if it signals something broader about the front office's approach to analytics or how they're constructing that part of the organization. Yeah, so what I've heard, you know, it's guys like Russell Carlton who moved on after being there for a year. Russell was not a full-time guy in New York, uh, and the Mets wanted to concentrate more on full-time guys in New York. I think you can make a case why can't you also have (laughs) a guy like Russell not in New York? In addition, considering I I doubt he was making like four and a half million dollars or anything like that. You know, he was. Yeah. (laughs) The... uh, I don't know the gory mathematical details (laughs) of his salary, but it it does seem like this is an area that the Mets are investing more than they did, you know, two years ago. At the end of 2018, they had three full-time members of their analytics department, which was about as few as any any team in baseball. They're up to like seven or eight now, last I heard, uh, which is better, but still not on par with uh, the best teams in baseball or the the most analytical teams in baseball. Uh, And it seems like an area that like it doesn't cost that much to invest there. And when the Mets often come out and say, you know, you don't need to spend the most on players, that that's not necessarily how you win, but you do need to spend on other aspects if you're not spending it all on players. They don't always follow that train of thought. So I fibbed, I do have one more front office related question, which is that obviously these changes weren't the only ones that got made uh, this offseason. So Jessica Mendoza had some controversial comments about Mike Fires as the sign stealing scandal was unfolding. She has since stepped down as a Mets advisor. This organization seems to have a a comfortable relationship, I guess we could say, with potential conflicts of interest. And I'm curious if there's been any effort internally to resolve some of those or to at least face them in a perhaps more honest way (laughs) than they have been in the past, or if this is just a a blip. Yeah. So, you know, obviously it starts with Van Wagenen, who in his first offseason recused himself from from all negotiations within arbitration, not just with guys that he had dealt with as former clients or that CAA had dealt with as former clients, but with all of the Mets. And then... I think there was a thought that he would not be part of the negotiations with Jacob deGrom for a contract extension, but he was very much active in that that negotiation. And when they came to terms with deGrom, you know, 11 months ago on a, on a long-term deal. Uh, and then you had Mendoza, who, you know, like other people in baseball, you know, David Ross and Alex Rodriguez had, had been in similar spots, was an ESPN broadcaster while also being a part of their front office. The difference was, I think the Mets thought of her as taking more of an active role in the front office than some, you know, Rodriguez and Ross seemed more like ambassadors for the yeah. car, the same way that Pedro Martinez is for the Red Sox. You know, he'll he'll hang around spring training, he'll do a little, you know, he'll look at some pitchers, but he's not exactly in the room when you're making trade deadline decisions. And the thought was that Mendoza would be, you know, part of the decision-making process, if not as much during the season than maybe into the off-season, uh, at the GM meetings, the winter meetings, and that kind of thing. And it seems like it never really evolved to that point that she wasn't that active especially during the season in in what they were doing as a front office 
And I think with the the blowback, you kind of got to a point where she was e- either going to be a broadcaster or a part of the Mets front office. It was, you know, the, the day she's criticizing Mike Fires uh, on the air. And we're talking to Brody Van Wagenen about letting Carlos Beltran go. And he's saying, you know, she made those comments as a broadcaster, not as a member of the Mets front office. And identity is not, we can't have ourselves quite that way as much as we would like to. So I think, you know, Moving on from her, I think that's probably a good move for both of them because she couldn't really do both roles well at the same time. Well, I think we finally covered all of the off-season stories, all the off-the-field stories at least, and now we can transition to the on-the-field stories. One reason why it took so long to get to this point is that A, it's the Mets, so there are many strange stories, but also there weren't that many baseball-related stories in terms of transactions this winter. It was mostly minor moves. It was depth rotation moves, Porcello and Waka, and then Dallin Batansis came in, and we mentioned Marisnik, and that's about it. There weren't really any major impacts moves made. And I'm curious whether you think that is just Wilpon Madoff fallout and restricting spending for that reason. The many Mets fans who have been Venmoing Brody Van Wagen in small amounts of money, according to the New York Times, certainly seem to think so. Or was there not an obvious fit for one of these free agents? Is there some glaring hole where you look and say, how were they not in the bidding for that guy? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think if this were a, a team that spent it a- at its market value, you know, if this were the Yankees, yeah, they would have been uh, a bit more involved on retaining Zach Wheeler, uh, maybe even getting a, a higher ceiling starter than guys like Porcello and Waka. They could have talked about uh, a big-time third baseman, whether it's Rendon or Donaldson. They could have talked about trading for Mookie Betts uh, and filling a decade-long void that they've had in center field. But this is not that franchise. So they're going, you know, they finished the second half very well last year. They had the second best record in the National League after the All-Star break behind the Dodgers. The best second half record of a team that didn't make the playoffs in 39 years since the, the Orioles, who won like 100 games when they didn't make the playoffs. So they feel really good about how they played in the second half. Of course, it helped when you had both Wheeler and Marcus Stroman in the rotation. They've kind of pitched Stroman as Wheeler's replacement, ignoring the fact that they were under 500 when they'd had just one of them in there. You know, I, I think they've made the team better in some aspects. You know, I think Batances is a, a really nice addition to the bullpen. As long as he's healthy, he's been one of the best relievers in baseball for five or six years now uh, and gives you another higher, high ceiling guy there in case Edwin Diaz doesn't bounce back from last season, in case Jerry's Familia isn't any better than he was last season, in case Seth Lugo can't be the same person he was last year. Uh, you know, you just kind of want to have as many guys as you can to bet on in a bullpen. But I think the starting rotation will probably take a step back, not not just because uh, they, they lose Wheeler, but they lose like Wheeler's potential, because I think you would have probably projected him to be a little bit better this year than he actually was on the field last year. Yeah, and Wheeler came out not too long ago and was critical of how the Mets handled or didn't handle his free agency. He said essentially that they never got back to him. He said he wasn't surprised because it's them. It's how they roll. So was there some reason that they thought that they didn't want to go after him specifically? Uh, sometimes when a team knows a player well, they might know something concerning about him or his health or his potential or something. Or was it just, well, we have rotation depth? I'm wondering because, of course, they did did trade for Marcus Stroman, and so that was sort of a, a move that was pitched toward 2020 before 2020. But 
could they have, instead of going and getting Porcello and Waka and Batansis and some of these sort of iffy guys who might be good but have some serious concerns about them, could they just have put that money toward, if not Wheeler, just a, a dependable second-tier starter because there were quite a few of those guys available this winter? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the minute they traded for Stroman, you know, when, once we got to August 1st and they had Stroman, Wheeler, and Noah Syndergaard all on their roster still, uh, it was very unlikely they were going to bring all three of those guys back for 2020. And they decided that the market for Syndergaard, uh, at least the trade market, wasn't as robust as they had hoped. They couldn't kind of make a blockbuster deal that for a win-now player they wanted to do with him. And then Wheeler, the free agent market, you know, especially with the second half that he had for the second straight year, a really good second half, that market just got way more expensive than they were willing to go. You know, I think Zach Wheeler's a guy they probably could have signed to a much team-friendlier extension, whether it was the summer of 2018 or last or the offseason before 2019 or earlier in 2019. But once he got close enough to free agency, you know, he, he could see the dollar signs piling up uh, in a different kind of way for him. And it, it kind of speaks to the skepticism around the industry about the Mets getting the most out of their pitchers that so many teams saw in Zach Wheeler, a guy who had, you know, a league average ERA last year, a guy capable of being so uh, of being better with a better defense behind him, with uh, a more a, a better framer behind the plate, with maybe better pitching coaching. Let's circle back to the bullpen for a second. I've a couple of questions here. And the first is, let's let's talk about Batances. I'm curious, you know, I know he just started facing live batters. What is the state of his health right now? And how much are the, the Mets actually expecting him to pitch this year? Yeah, so he's a little bit behind the rest of the, the relievers in terms, you know, he's not like appearing in games at this point. Right. Uh, I think the thought is that, you know, with, with relievers in particular, it, it, you don't have to build up quite as much in spring training as you do if you're a starting pitcher or, a you know, a guy who wants 40, 50 at-bats in spring. I think there's still a chance that he is ready for opening day, but he probably has to get in games within the next week or two before you, you start to feel confident with that. I. Their belief is that uh, he will be he will be there for most of the season, if not all of the season, off of the the Achilles injury. But you never know that until you actually get into the season. But I think they they think he's you know a little bit behind everyone else, but in terms of a, a reliever, about as healthy as they come. And then let's talk about Edwin Diaz. I know it is very rude to uh, expect you to be able to prognosticate on reliever performance, <laughs> um, but this bullpen was pretty disastrous at times last year. We had them 24th in, in war for relief corps. Has Diaz made any noticeable changes in his approach, or is he trying to just get back to sort of the the stuff that he was doing when he was pitching so well in Seattle? I know he pitched yesterday for them as a reformed Mariners fan it was very sad to see him falter so strongly last year what are your expectations for Diaz yeah I mean last year was so strange for him because a lot of the peripheral numbers still looked really good this is a guy who yeah. still struck out about 40 percent of opposing hitters uh, which you don't expect from a guy with a 5-6 ERA uh, it seemed like you know he would throw two great sliders and then hang one that got hit for a home run. He gave up 15 home runs, which is more than I think he'd given up in any other two seasons of his career combined. Uh, so I think there's there's reasons to think that a lot of last year was fluky. Like he, he wasn't going, you know, it's not like it's strictly bad luck that he wasn't 2018 Edwin Diaz. That's not the only difference. But it's bad luck that instead of having like a, a respectable 3-8 or 4 ERA, it was 5-6. And it was one of the main reasons the Mets finished three games out of the playoffs. So I think, you know, his arm angle looked a little bit different in that first spring outing. But I, I hesitate to jump too much into that because it's the first one. Uh, and 
because it's spring training television action. I'm not sure how much to read into that. But otherwise, I think it's just a matter of getting confidence back in his slider where at least the bad ones aren't hung. They're not just in the middle of the plate that he can he can use that. Because what, what happened eventually was guys just started either sitting, you know, if the slider was down the middle, they were swinging. If not, they were laying off of it. Uh, and that got him in trouble counts where he's throwing, where he had to throw fastball. You know, it became a one-pitch pitcher for stretches of last season. Uh, and even with as electric a fastball as he has, he can't survive like that. Yeah, that was such a confounding season. I think Sam and I talked about it at some point late last year because we were trying to put ourselves in the place of the manager who has a pitcher like Diaz and you have to decide, do I still trust him or not? And you look at some of the numbers that are great or even the projections that are great and then you look at all the home runs and you think, boy, that could be bad luck, but gee, it keeps happening over and over and over again. And when you're watching it up close and fans are rioting about it, then it's hard to just sort of stick to it and say, hey, trust in the the bigger sample or something so how long do you think his leash is now because uh, the Mets went into last season expecting to have this dominant back of the bullpen with Familia and Diaz and then that really didn't happen and it was Seth Lugo who became the go-to dependable guy so do you think Lugo could displace Diaz if things start out shaky for Diaz? Or is there just so much, I guess, organizational weight behind Diaz because of that trade and him being the centerpiece of it and not wanting to concede defeat, essentially, that there might be some pressure on Rojas to keep him in that role? Yeah, so they've got some really interesting decisions to make with the bullpen. I think entering spring training, the ninth inning closers role is Edwin Diaz's to lose. If he has a lot of outings like his first one, in which he got hit pretty hard, a lot of hard contact, he may very well lose it. I think it'd be difficult to go into the regular season with him as your closer uh, if he's not looking particularly good in spring training, you know. He was booed at the spring training facility for his outing uh, on Wednesday. I don't think that translates well to City Field if he has a bad one or early in the season. And you could, you know, if that happens, then I think you've got to build him up. I thought it was a little strange last year that they were they were slow in getting him out of high leverage situations because even when he wasn't closing all the time, they were using him in the eighth inning in, in bigger spots. It, it just seemed like. They didn't adapt to his struggles as quickly as they could have to maybe cut them off and give him a chance to work his way back into form in seventh innings of, of more spread out games. Although they tried that with Jerry's Familia, it didn't really work. Uh, mm-hmm. With Lugo, you know, he showed last year that he can be a, a very good late inning reliever. What's strange is that, you know, he's a guy who can go through a lineup a little bit deeper. He's a guy capable of pitching two innings, you know, guy who could probably be a league average starter if they wanted him to be that at this point. And who would like to be that himself. And they've talked a little bit about him as potentially an opener for whether it's Steven Matz or Michael Waka at the back of the rotation. A guy who can pitch two really good innings at the start of a game rather than at the end. Uh, so there's different ways to, it's kind of deciding what is the best way you want to deploy Seth Lugo also in, in terms of who you want your closer to be. Because if he's your closer, then he's a little bit less flexible than he would otherwise be as, as maybe a six out fireman at the start or at the end of games. And then you've, you've got Patances, how healthy is he? Justin Wilson was really good for them down the stretch and he's got a little bit of closing experience, but I, I don't know if you necessarily buy into him as as the best guy in this bullpen. 
Let's maybe run through the the battery of potential injury issues facing this roster going into the season, because I think the last couple of weeks have been a bit scary for some Mets fans. So J.D. Davis has a shoulder issue, maybe. Brandon Nimmo had cardiac tests yesterday on the advice of team doctors and got pulled, although that seems to not have been super serious. What's the latest on those two? And uh, should Mets fans be expecting them on opening day? Or are these injuries that might linger or issues, I should say, that might linger into the season yeah i mean to, to say additional cardiac testing is, is minor that that's Sounds like taking very scary <laughs> it's like taking minor surgery is, sure. is surgery for someone else to another level but it, it does you know it, it's it's not a uh who was a brad wick with the cubs where it was an actual cardiac procedure we'll we'll, we'll see in the next yeah. couple of days whether this is anything really concerning with nimmo uh with jd davis you know it was it was kind of a classic mets reveal that his mri revealed no new structural damage uh with that adjective new doing a lot of work yep. uh that there there was some some issues with his labrum that he would had been asymptomatic about uh, and didn't know about so i think their thought is that you know he might miss a couple games here uh but he shouldn't miss too much in terms of workout action and all that uh, and so could should still be ready for opening day. We're at that point in spring where uh, you can still miss a little bit of time and get back, but you probably can't miss like more than a week or so uh, of game action and, and feel ready. Uh, and that, you know, Davis probably is their opening day left fielder, but they have a little bit of flexibility there uh, with Dominic Smith as a guy who played a lot there last year. He's not like the injury. He's not the, the guy they can least afford to miss, although the way he played down the stretch was really eye-opening for them in the second half. And then I guess to just continue the outfield injury parade, are we going to see Ioannis Espedes play baseball in Queens this year? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's likelier now than I would have said really at any point since last May when we found out about the additional ankle injuries suffered on his ranch in adventurous fashion. You know, Espedes looks like a major league ready hitter in batting practice and all that. I think if the Mets were an American League team, I would feel very confident saying this is a guy who could DH for them, if not on opening day, then at least early in the season. But they are not in the American League. If they were, it would have solved so many of this team's issues right now. But, you know, we haven't seen Cespedes in the outfield. We haven't seen him running around. I don't think he's running really in straight lines for long distances yet. He's kind of doing zigzag running and getting some, putting a little bit more pressure on his ankle now. Uh, so we'll get a sense for, for what, where he is defensively over the next couple of weeks. And I think that will tell us more about how viable a major league player he is in 2020. If he's just, you know, there's a, a chance now that he can just be kind of a pinch hit weapon off the bench. A guy who doesn't start very often for you, maybe starts in American league parks, but you use late in games to hit for guys, which, you know, you've got an extra bench player this year. You can carry that a little bit more easily than in the past. But if he can actually play the field, uh, that gives them a little bit of a, you know, that gives them another right-handed bat in the lineup, which is something they could use uh, to complement Pete Alonso and, and lengthens out this lineup just a little bit more. Zigzag the best way to avoid hogs and boars of various sorts, so the preferred <laughs> running pattern there. And, and linebackers in Tecmo Super Bowl, if I remember oh, correctly. <laughs> so Cespedes played appearances more or less likely than Tebow played appearances. Oh, much, much more. I think okay. if I don't know if you want to dive into Tebow, but his chance was, was two years ago, and I, I don't mm -hmm. think it's coming again. Yeah, I, I saw some tweets about Tim Tebow opening date left fielder <laughs> just this week <laughs> on Twitter just because the injuries seemed to be picking up. But then I also saw tweets about how he was like literally the worst hitter in AAA <laughs> last year. That's not what you want. So, yeah. Currently the seventh most popular prospect search on Fangraphs right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
that makes sense. So you mentioned how this team, a lot of its issues might be solved if it were in the AL, and it's not. And one of the issues that this team has is that it has a bunch of DH-type players, I guess, who have to play the field. Defense has not been a strength of the Mets. I think they were 13th in the league in defensive efficiency last year. And the players haven't really changed a whole lot. And that could be an issue because you do have guys like Porcello and Waka and Stroman. These are pitch-to-contact pitchers, at least by the standards of today. So is there concern about the defense? Is there anything they can do about the defense? I know that you recently wrote about how Wilson Ramos has dropped to one knee to try to improve his framing, which Gary Sanchez also did across town. That seems to be all the rage among catchers these days. But beyond that, is there much you can do? And could that be a a problem? for the team yeah I mean I remember looking at this in in like late 2018 and then again early last season like there wasn't a clear solution to their long-term defensive woes uh, and they haven't found one yet Uh, you can look at their at them right now uh, and their their infield is like they'll replace Todd Frazier at third base who was about league average defensively last season uh, and had been better than that previously with Jeff McNeil who I think could be a league average or better at third. That could be an improvement, though McNeil is basically the only plus defender they have. Although he is a plus defender at virtually every position. It's just too bad they can't clone him defensively. Uh, The outfield is probably going to be worse because with some of the injuries they had last year, they ended up playing uh, a fair amount of of Juan Lagares in center field or or Carlos Gomez in center field, and now it'll be Brandon Nimmo there most of the time, although they have Jake Marisnik as a defensive replacement. We'll see even more, I think, of J.D. Davis and Dom Smith in left field than we did last year. The hope is with more adequate preparation for that role over the offseason, they'll be better at it than they were last year. This, This time last year, the Mets did not play either of those guys in the outfield in spring training, and they had come to camp as kind of uh, Smith is a first baseman, Davis is a first baseman, third baseman. Uh, so they've got a little bit more exposure out there, a lot, of, a little bit more experience. I don't know that they'll necessarily be better because they were not very good out in the outfield last year. And if they're there on a consistent basis or with Cespedes, because who knows how he'll be defensively, uh, left field is probably not a, a strong suit. The good news is Ahmed Rosario was a terrible defender really the first six weeks of the season or so. Was, had cost them something like 10 defensive runs by mid-May. And then for the rest of the season was essentially league average. So he's got, the hope is he can be kind of the league average defender for the whole of the 2020 season. And then Pete Alonso was a lot better than expected at first base. If he just stops kind of going after balls in the hole that are, are actually the second basemans, then he'll be, you know, at least a league average, if not a slightly plus first baseman, which is not what the scouting report was on him just a, a year or two ago. I have a couple questions related to the farm system, and I'm sorry, Mets fans, this might be a little bit painful for you. So obviously this group is thinner at the top than it used to be because of graduations and also because of of a couple of these deals. We have seen the Mets be sort of resistant historically to scouting the lower levels of the minors, and they've had some departures in on the international side of things. And I'm curious what the organization's approach is going to be going forward to sort of backfilling the, you know, the lack of uh, depth in their system as a result of some of these trades to try to compete. Now, do you see them starting to go further down into the minor leagues to try to acquire guys to help down the road? Do you think they're going to stay as active internationally uh, as they have in the past? What's sort of the organizational approach to prospects right now? 
Yeah, I think on the international level, there, you know, Omar Manaya is back in the organization doing a lot of that work now, and they they hope he can be as successful there as as they've they've been recently with a guy like Ahmed Rosario, you know, Ronnie Mauricio, who's their top prospect and a top hundred guy. Uh, they signed a few years ago, Francisco Alvarez, uh, a catcher who's only eighteen, is probably their highest ceiling prospect in the minors right now, and some people consider him a top hundred guy as well at this point. You know, we, we saw a little bit of the domestic strategy uh, last last june in the draft when they decided to to kind of bet gamble their fourth through 10th round picks on their chance on their ability to sign matthew allen uh, you know a first round talent who fell to the third round because of signability concerns to kind of add another high ceiling prospect and they succeeded in that regard in, in landing allen so they got kind of you know they had brett Beatty as the eighth overall pick they got allen down in the 80s uh, so they felt really good about their draft hall last june uh, and they drafted pretty well recently under the, the current amateur scouting regime. I'm, I'm interested in seeing they have the extra third round pick, the extra pick around that area after the second round because of, of Wheeler signing in Philadelphia. If they try to adopt a similar strategy, if that strategy is even implementable beforehand, or if you kind of have to, to play it by ear during the actual course of the draft. But that's one way for them to try to amass as much talent as possible, as much high-end talent as possible in the lower levels where you know most of their, their real valuable prospects are at this point. I guess we left Jed Lowry out of our injury brigade breakdown. <laughs> so what's his status and prognosis? Uh, left out of the, the injury conversation the same way he was largely left out of the 2019 Mets season. Yes. Um, Lowry still, you know, he, he dealt with soreness in his left knee in February of last year and then made nine plate appearances all season, did not play an inning defensively because of a cascade of injuries off of that. Uh, he's back in spring training. He hasn't been in a game yet, but he's been in all of the workouts. He's kind of a full participation guy, I guess, if this is like a a football parlance. But he's wearing an enormous brace on his left leg that goes basically from the middle of his thigh down to his shin. It's the largest brace that I have seen an athlete wear beyond what I've seen like even football players, even offensive linemen are not wearing braces this size. So I think it's a matter of whether he feels comfortable wearing that in an actual game. I don't know what he can do if he's not wearing it because he was still having issues with his leg uh, in the offseason, you know, 10 months after initially feeling the pain in his leg. So I, I think they're still a little bit confused as to exactly what's going on and how best to move forward. So I, I think with him, it's even though he's ahead of Cespedes in the protocol in, in the process right now, I, I feel like it's harder to say when or if he'll contribute to this team on the field in the regular season than it is for even Cespedes. The Mets went from an 82-year-old pitching coach, Phil Regan, to a 33-year-old pitching coach, Jeremy Hefner. That's got to be some sort of record. You recently wrote about Hefner, so how may he do things differently? What does he bring to the team? Yeah, so they, they, they've really overhauled their their whole pitching coach position. Uh, and <laughs> strangely enough, it's not because they went from from Regan to Hefner. It's, you know, they went from Dave Island uh, at the start of last season, who, you know, is, is more of an old school, traditional, rub some dirt on it kind of pitching coach uh, to Hefner, who is more well versed in the analytical side of things. Uh, I went over to, to Twins Camp last week to talk to a bunch of pitchers who worked with, with Hefner there. You know, they made the, the same point. You know, Ben, I don't know if you've heard about the word conduit uh, between the, the front office and the, the dugout. That was a word that was used there is a guy who understands what the analytics are but then tells it to you in a way that you as a player understand kind of regardless of your knowledge of analytics you know the twins have guys like trevor may who know a lot about it uh and they can and hefner really dug in deep with him we've got some other guys who are less interested in it on the surface uh, and he was able to explain it to them in a way that 
you know, they could understand and take to the field and, and use productively. So I think that's the hope is that they have that that better communication between the pitching coach and the pitchers that they're able to get the most out of their pitchers. Like we were talking about with Wheeler, there was still the belief in the industry that the Mets were not maximizing Zach Wheeler's talent. And certainly with Noah Syndergaard, that same skepticism exists across baseball that, you know, if Noah Syndergaard were to go to the Houston Astros tomorrow, he would be Garrett Cole or something like that. And this is a guy who had a 4-3 ERA for them last year. Uh, so I think their hope is with Hefner on board, they've got, they brought in Jeremy Accardo in the middle of last season as an, the pitching strategist then and the assistant pitching coach now. They've kind of advanced, they've, they've got more advanced camera work on the road and, and all of the uh, Rapsodo and Edgertronic stuff. Uh, that that they can be more in line with the the rest of the industry and get the most out of their pitchers in a way they maybe weren't for a time the last couple of years. We're going to force you to predict their record in a second, but I want to ask just a more general sort of competitive landscape question. Um, we're projecting the Mets for 88 wins at Fangraphs. We have them well in the thick of their race, uh, but they're obviously in a very uh, competitive division. I'm curious how they view themselves positioned this year and then going forward. Yeah, so we haven't heard Brody Van Wagenen issue the kind of come get us edicts that he did last offseason uh, about, about the National League East. So he's been uh, a bit more humble about it. I mean, this is a, a good and deep division. The Braves, I think, made a jump last season that the people that the Mets front office did not expect them to make from 90 wins to 97. Uh, and then obviously the Nationals won the World Series. So it, it's a it's a difficult division, probably the deepest. I don't know if it's the deepest in the National League. The Central has a bunch of good teams too. But, you know, if the Mets were in a different division that 88 win ceiling would feel the 88 win mark would feel a little bit closer to being at the top of the division than maybe it does here but i think like this is a team that's they're not looking to time when they're competitive with the rest of their division if they were uh they'd probably take a few years off because atlanta looks very well positioned for the next several years uh so they van wagenen always says win now and in the future uh and they seem leaning more heavily on the win now right now and seeing how it plays out over the next year or so all right. Well, Meg primed you with the projected number there, but you do not have to agree. So how many wins do you foresee for the Mets in 2020? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because all of the off-field drama that they've had in the in the, the winter is kind of obscured that this is probably the most talented team they've brought to spring training. Maybe in a decade, I think you can make a case the 2016 team off of the pennant was as talented as this team. But other than that, I think you're really going back to like 2009 and the the primes of of David Wright and Jose Reyes and Carlos Beltran and Carlos Delgado. All of those guys got hurt that season and they lost 90 games. But this is probably as, you know as talented a team as they've had since then. That said, I think the defensive issues are something that don't show up on paper as much when you're looking at kind of this lineup versus Atlanta's lineup or Washington's lineup or Philly's lineup. And there are some people on this, this roster that are I think you worry a lot about what an injury to Wilson Ramos does to this team because there's such a big drop-off between him and the next person you have uh, in Tomas Nito as your backup catcher. You worry, you know, if you lose uh, a Jacob deGrom or Noah Syndergaard or Marcus Stroben for any considerable length of time, uh, that really changes your outlook on this team. And you're 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 hinging a lot of your your bets to a much improved bullpen, and and that's always difficult to to feel confident about. So I think. They'll probably end up somewhere similar to where they were last year. They won 86 last year. I think they probably take a more linear path to it rather than the 
a terrible first half, awesome second half, but I'd probably settle on about 87 wins. All right. Well, you can read about the Mets and hear about the Mets at The Athletic, courtesy of Tim. You can also find him on Twitter at Tim Britton. Boy, you went from the Red Sox to the Mets, just <laughs> one eventful newsmaking team to another. Do you ever dream of just, I don't know, going to cover the Padres for a while or someone? Uh- I don't think I could ever adapt to that at this point. It's too it's too late. I'm too far gone. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. We'll take a quick break now, and we'll be right back with Ben Nicholson-Smith to talk about the Blue Jays. Everyone talks about it. Everyone's on the phone. My eyes glow for now. Silver and gold. All right, we are back to talk about the Toronto Blue Jays, and to do that, we're joined by another returning guest, Ben Nicholson-Smith, who covers the Jays and baseball for Sportsnet. Hey, Ben. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. How's it going? It's going all right. So the Blue Jays' offseason focus was constructing rotation, because essentially there wasn't one when the offseason started. And that was something that I was not as aware of as I should have been as the season went on. It's something Sam and I talked about in our end-of-the-year pods when we looked at the stories we missed. But Blue Jays got starts from 21 different pitchers last year. That is the most any team has ever had other than the 1915 Philadelphia Athletics. And I assume that's partly openers, but also just instability and fragility and not having dependable guys. So... How did they go about building that rotation, and why was Ryu the one that they decided to splurge on? Well, if you look back to 2019, they really needed to upgrade the rotation. This was a group that collectively had an ERA well above five, and it wasn't just the numbers. It was a constant scramble to try to find arms for this rotation. They turned at one point to a left-handed knuckleballer in Ryan Fierabend. They were putting Edwin Jackson on the mound and Clayton Richard and Clay Buckles, these veterans, nearing the end of their careers. So it, it was a constant battle, and Charlie Montoyo at times would admit he didn't know who was going to start the next day. He would even say, and we're we're going to just just play it by ear. We're going to have an opener and a guy. We're just going to do our best to come up with somebody. And and that's really what it felt like for all of last year. So that made the Blue Jays' off-season roadmap really clear. They had to find a way to upgrade their rotation. And that was probably going to have to happen in free agency because it's tough to acquire really decent starting pitching in trades. And there were a lot of pitchers out there on the free agent market. So they started by adding Chase Anderson, ended up getting Tanner Roark in December at the winter meetings, but they had been on Ryu the entire time and they wanted to assign him. They engaged with his agent, Scott Boris, right from the very beginning of the winter in the hopes that he would seriously consider Toronto. They stayed on him, made their pitch, made a pretty aggressive offer at $80 million and ended up landing him. So, you know, he doesn't, single-handedly transform this team or this rotation but it is a much different look than that group that we saw for 2019 and the reinforcement that we haven't talked about yet and that won't be i assume with the team on opening day but will be uh, waiting in the wings is their top prospect nate pearson i'm curious when you expect that we might see pearson and how he's going to change the complexion of this rotation going forward With Nate Pearson, I mean, you could make a case that he's someone who belongs on the Blue Jays pitching staff from day one. I mean, on a talent standpoint, (laughs) it would be hard to argue that this 
hard-throwing right-hander with a, a really impressive breaking ball and a developing changeup who has dominated at the upper levels of the minors doesn't belong on this starting staff. But he's not going to break camp with the team. He will start the season at AAA Buffalo. Some of that you can attribute to developmental reasons. I think reading between the lines, it's pretty clear that service time would be a factor here as well because Pearson is that level of prospect. And so he'll go to AAA. He'll try to build his way up there. And if he does succeed the way he has so far in his minor league career, then there could be a point in May. There could be a point in June where the Blue Jays need an arm, and Pearson becomes that guy. So it'll be a lot of fun to watch. I mean, he's a potential difference maker in this organization, in this rotation for a long time. So there is a lot of optimism around what Pearson can do. And, you know, selfishly, I hope he's up here pretty soon because he's he's going to be a lot of fun to watch once he does arrive in the majors. Yeah, it seems like the organization's approach has been to try to find complementary talent to slot in around their young stars, because they obviously have this really impressive young core coming up, some of which has already arrived in Vlad Jr. and Beau Bichette and Kevin Beggio, and some of which is coming down the pipe right in Pearson. They still have some work to do, obviously, and this might be a little early in the pod to ask this question, but I'm curious, given sort of the balance of young talent and then some of the veterans they have on the team, when they really expect to be back in the postseason season conversation in an earnest way. I think you could see stuff breaking right in a particular way for this club and them maybe being on the fringe of the wild card this year, but that seems pretty optimistic. So what's their realistic timeline for contention? Yeah, it, it would be a bit of a stretch to say that 2019 is a year where this team can contend. Not to say it's impossible in the way that you could never really imagine that for the 2019 team, but everything would have to break right for them to contend in 2020. In 2021, so a year from now, I I think it's more realistic that this team might actually be contending, and they're in a tough division, no doubt about that. They need to find some solutions offensively, you know, in the outfield in particular. They need to have some success stories on their pitching staff and, and probably have somebody like an, an Anthony Kay or a Trent Thornton take a big step forward in 2020. But if those things happen, they'll go into the offseason again with payroll flexibility, the, the ability to do some things in trade, in free agency, and they do have a pretty good farm system. So they can trade from that. They haven't really parted with future talent in an aggressive way so far. And and I think that they're always going to be somewhat conservative when it comes to holding on to their best prospects. But we can see that shift starting already. And I think it will continue to the point where 2021, that should be a season that's about winning and less a season that's about development. Right. Because last year, last summer, Ross Atkins came out with the infamous years of control comment about how they acquired 42 years of control or turned 14 years of control into 42 years of control, which is one of those phrases that's up there with financial flexibility when it comes to things that team executives brag about that fans can't really get that excited about or can't put on the back of a jersey, at least. And more recently, Blue Jays president Mark Shapiro was talking about where the team stands and he was saying that management has started to listen to our young players and just the power of their belief in each other and the belief in their potential sort of suggesting that they would be willing to upgrade but then also kind of downplaying expectations for this season so I guess they are in this sort of transitional time what about in terms of ramping up spending and future well financial flexibility since we're talking about that phrase at what point might they really start investing more in free agents and bringing the payroll up back to what it once was? 
Well, the Ryu deal was really significant in that it showed that this front office and ownership combination is willing to spend, able to spend on free agents. So that's a big step because previous to that, their biggest free agent signing was Jay Happ, $36 million deal. Their biggest commitment overall was Randall Gritchuk at $52 million. So they really hadn't been spending that aggressively. And Toronto is, of course, the only team in Canada. It's a pretty big market. Their payroll did get up to 160 170 or so in 2016 when they were last a really competitive team. So it'll probably take a couple of years for it to get back toward that territory. But according to the public comments that Mark Shapiro has made, it sounds like that's a threshold that the Blue Jays would be confident getting to, that the support would be there from ownership. You know, of course, we'll we'll have to see that to believe that. But I do think the Ryu deal does go a long way toward reminding Blue Jays fans that this front office is willing and able to spend. And we'll see how far that goes in the next couple of years. Yeah, so we are entering extension season, and the Blue Jays have all these promising young guys, Bichette and Biggio and Guerrero and Pearson. Do you expect to see any of them signed long-term in the next month or so or within this year? Because it seems like that's something that the Blue Jays should be thinking about. To me, it's it's pretty clear that the Blue Jays should at least explore extensions with those players. I mean, they're potentially star-level players, um, potentially superstar-level players, at least you know in, in a few of those cases. So it, it makes all the sense in the world to have that conversation and to see if there's a fit on a deal that buys out a couple free agent years or gives the team a, a reasonable deal for what could be some potentially expensive arbitration season. So on paper, it makes all kinds of sense. Now, would those players want to sign? I, you know, I don't know. Every player is an individual. And these guys come from a pretty unique set of backgrounds. I mean, not only did some of them get pretty significant bonuses, like Vlad's bonus, I think, was $3.5 million when he signed. But they come from, when in the cases of Biggio and, and Bichette and Guerrero, they come from baseball families and very affluent backgrounds. So I'm not sure that it would be necessarily easy to really tempt these guys with some of the early career extensions that you see other zero to three players take. And, you know, I understand the reasons for taking those deals, you know, depending on a person's personal motivation, personal situation, there are cases where that makes sense. You know, on paper, as you look at it, it seems less likely that those guys would be easy to tempt. But I think you have to have the conversation because there's a potential the huge advantage if you can lock them up beyond their six or seven years under club control. I want to talk about Vlad for a little bit. When he came up, he was the number one prospect in baseball. Our prospect analyst, Eric Longenhagen, described his bat as messianic. And, you know, I think people had really high expectations for him going into his rookie season and seemed to forget that, you know, baseball is still hard, even if you're the top prospect in baseball. He got off to a kind of slow start and then really turned it on in July and August and then cooled in September. I'm curious how you think we should evaluate his rookie season and sort of how the fan base is looking at at him obviously he's an incredibly talented player even with some slow months so how are people thinking about Vlad Jr.? I think you can look at Vladdy's rookie year in in a couple of different ways I mean on the one hand it's pretty clear that it didn't live up to expectations because he had you know relatively modest power numbers and he did struggle for extended stretches and he battled some injuries and his defense wasn't great so there were flaws. This was not a perfect rookie season. But 
when you consider just how high expectations were for Vlad, then, you know, I think that it, you, you have to soften that view a, a little bit. I mean, he entered the season having just hit 381 in the upper minors. He had just turned 20 when the season started. He was getting used to a new playing surface, a new ball club, new teammates, new travel, everything that, that any rookie deals with. And alongside that, just immense expectations, being the son of a Hall of Famer and the best prospect in baseball, certainly, um, but the best prospect in recent memory. So he was dealing with a lot of expectations, and he still was able to produce as an above-average hitter. So I think he deserves some credit for that. Now, where this leaves him for 2020, I think expectations are still high for the fan base and within the organization. People think that Vladdy is someone who has the potential to be an elite hitter, someone who just has incredible power, really good plate discipline, good bat-to-ball skills, and, you know, we'll see what happens with the defense. But he's someone who I I think continues to generate a lot of excitement, and and rightfully so. Yeah, the only real knock on him as a prospect coming up was the defense. This is the the time of year when we hear about guys being in the best shape of their lives. Uh, And I think there have been some justifiable concerns about the body and how that's going to affect his knees long-term and his ability to stick at third. So what what is sort of the state of Vlad's conditioning? This is one of those awkward questions that we kind of have to ask because this is a, a legitimate concern for him. Yeah, I would agree, Meg, that it definitely is a legitimate concern. When you think about the difference in value between a player who can take the field 145 games and a guy who takes the field 110 games, the difference between a designated hitter and a first baseman and a third baseman. I mean, there's a lot at stake here with respect to how well Vlad Jr. can field and how well he can stay on the field. And so that led to an offseason for him of a lot of conditioning work. And according to some of the people who are really close to him, including Charlie Montoyo and the team translator, Hector LeBron, GM Ross Atkins, they were all raving about how much work he was doing. And we all saw the Instagram videos of of Vladdy working out both in in Dunedin, Florida and in the Dominican, where he spends part of his offseason. So he put in the work, you know, is he is he in better shape right now? Like, it's hard to tell. I mean, I, I think that the season ultimately is going to be is going to reveal a lot from where I sit. I'm, you know, I'm now in Toronto. I'll be down in, in spring training in pretty short order. But, you know, you can only tell so much through video. And even once I'm there, it's not like, you know, there's, there's a limit to how much you can actually see the, the conditioning of these players. So all we know is that the people close to Vlad say he's in better shape. But the, the season is, is a long test. And, and Vlad admitted at the end of last year, he was tired at times. That was one of the reasons he wanted to hit the gym and he wanted to work out so much. But he is still a big guy and that will take a toll on his knees. So that's, that is one of the big questions for Vlad and for this organization going forward. Yeah, when MLB put out its StatCast-based infield outs above average, Vlad was dead last on that list of 139 players. And if he is that poor defender, then you know it's hard to be a superstar if you are literally the worst player, worst defender in baseball at your position. And then, of course, maybe you start talking about, well, does he just become a DH at some point? And if he does become a DH, then he really has to rake to be a star player, which I think people still expect him to, obviously. But if there was any other concern about him in that first year, I guess it was that he did hit a lot of ground balls. He he seemed to have just sort of a low launch 
Jingle stroke and that is unfortunate when you hit the ball as hard and as far as he can as we all saw in the home run derby so I don't know if that's just general adjustments he was a little bit better at the plate in the second half of the season but are they talking about any sort of swing adjustment or is it just well we all thought he was going to be one of the best hitters in baseball from the get-go last year so let's give it more time well there's no doubt about it Vladdy was hitting more ground balls then the Blue Jays would have wanted him to. And when you're a player with that much power, you want to be hitting it over the wall or, or at least up in the air in, in some in some form. And Guerrero just didn't do a ton of that in 2019. But at least according to the people who I've spoken to about this, the sense is that a lot of it came down to pitch selection. So instead of having to remake his swing, People believe in the swing. They think this this swing is going to play and it's going to generate all kinds of power and, and really, really big numbers for the Blue Jays. But it comes down to laying off the pitches that he can't drive, really trying to target the pitches that he can drive. And we saw at some points in last year where there were moments that Vlad would expand the strike zone unnecessarily. He would get frustrated with a call that an umpire had made, lose his focus a little bit. And, and end up chasing or, or making bad contact. So I, I think on a human level, that's really understandable. He's 20 years old, struggling for the first time probably ever on a baseball field and, and doing it in front of a lot of eyeballs. So to get a little frustrated in that situation, I, I think is very understandable. But now he's got the chance to adjust and, you know, he's the Blue Jays expect that he can do that, especially if he does a better job of targeting the pitches that he really wants to drive. Yeah, and so the guy playing to Vlad's left in the infield had zero problems adjusting to big league pitching and, in fact, seemed to get better once he got promoted from AAA. That is Bo Bichette, who was just really on a rate basis, one of the better players in baseball from the day he got to Toronto. And I was not quite expecting what he did because you look at his AAA stats and they were not remarkable last year, even with the juice AAA ball. And then he comes up to the majors and hits 311, 358, 571. So how sustainable is that? Should people be projecting, okay, that's what Bobachet is, and now we can just extend it over a full season? Or should there be some sort of, not sophomore slump, but just a little bit of regression coming there? It really was an incredible season for Bobachet, and to expect him to replicate those numbers would probably be a lot. I mean, and to have a 311 average, a 930 OPS as a rookie, you know, I don't think the Blue Jays are counting on that. But if he could even go out there and have an OPS over 800, play steady defense at shortstop, which he was able to do in 2019, offer up a little bit of power, you've got some speed there, I, I think that would be a really valuable player and one that the Blue Jays would be thrilled to have at shortstop for the foreseeable future. So I, I think he's going to help with his bat. He's It's definitely not a fluke that he would provide some sort of offensive value. But at the same time, I don't think anyone's expecting Bichette to replicate those numbers exactly. But certainly there's a lot of optimism. And Bichette is someone who seems to thrive in the spotlight. He seemed to really enjoy being in the majors. He seemed completely undaunted by the the challenges that came along with with being in the major leagues so all of that is to his credit and and would suggest that he definitely belongs right up there with Laddie as far as cornerstones for this Blue Jays franchise 
I don't want to neglect the third member of the trio of young, promising sons of major leaguers. So I don't know if Biggio gets a, a little less mention just because Vlad was expected to be so great. And then Bichette came up and was so great. And Biggio was quite good in his own right. How does he sort of slot in in terms of future potential? Is he capable of ascending to the same heights as the other two? Or is he expected to settle in at a slightly lower but still productive place? I still think with Kevin Biggio, you have to say that the expectation is lower than someone like Vlad Guerrero Jr. or Boba Shett. But that still leaves room for a really good major league player. And... Biggio's skill set is is pretty impressive, um, especially for a young player. I mean, what he did last year when it came to plate discipline is pretty rare. He had the eye of like a 15-year veteran up there at the plate. He was just so disciplined, so patient, completely unwilling to expand the zone unnecessarily. And he did have some ups and downs throughout the season where he would have to adjust and pitchers would adjust back to him. But you look at the overall results and you see someone who got on base, who stole bases, who hit for some power, and who provided some defense and positional versatility that really helped this team out. So you add that up and you have a really good player and someone who maybe in his best seasons could make an all-star team. I mean, certainly I think he was worth something like two and a half wins above replacement, even as a rookie when he didn't even play every game. So that's the makings of a, of a very good player. The Blue Jays love his work ethic. They believe in the person uh, when it comes to Kevin Biggio and his willingness to put in work behind the scenes. But to, to put him on quite the same level as a Vlad Guerrero Jr. for potential, probably not there, but there is a lot of internal optimism over what he can do. I want to ask one more question about the lineup. It is a really young lineup, not just with the extremely young guys that we've talked about, but really all the way down. Travis Shaw will turn 30 in April, but he's the only one who's going to get there this year. It is just 20s all the way down. So is there anyone here in the young or youngish category who is getting a little overlooked because we are all focusing on Bichette and Biggio and Guerrero. I mean, Guriel or Hernandez or Fisher or Jansen or even Alfred, let's say. Is there anyone here who might take a step forward who is not part of that trio? Well, the Blue Jays are definitely hoping that you're you're missing a few guys on that list. I mean, it's conceivable that any one of the, the guys you just named, Ben, could have a, a really big season this year. And if that happens, that will accelerate the Blue Jays timeline. It will, it will make the, the idea of a contending Blue Jays team that much easier to, to imagine. Um, they need some of these guys to step up. But as for who, I don't know. I mean, you've got Hernandez, who did have an OPS over 900 in the second half last year. You've got Guriel, who in the course of, you know, roughly a full season's worth of games played in the major leagues, has an OPS over 850 and has, I think it's, I think it's something like 34, 35 home runs. So the bat plays clearly with Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Can Derek Fisher do in the majors what he's been able to do at AAA? I mean, that's, that's a big leap. That's not an easy adjustment, but he'll get some chances this year to, to prove that. And even a guy like Jansen, who is obviously playing an extremely demanding defensive position, also has a long track record, though, 
of producing as as a catcher in the upper minors. So there are guys who who definitely have a chance to step up. I think it is one of the products of a young team. We don't know exactly who these guys are. There's a lot of volatility as far as what the offense of this team is going to look like because if a few of those guys hit, you actually could have a team that takes a significant leap forward offensively. But if they hit the way they did last year, then you're probably looking at a below average lineup once again. I have a not fun question that I think we'll just get out of the way now. Reese McGuire has had a bad offseason <laughs> and is due to appear in court after an arrest uh, in March, I believe. What's the latest that you've heard on his legal case and what is the team's approach to his roster situation going to be? Well, we haven't heard from Reese McGuire himself yet. Yeah. Uh, it definitely is an uncomfortable uh, situation for the team and one that appears to be the product of a, a very poor decision by Reese McGuire. So here they are at, at this point, seemingly waiting for the the legal process to unfold a little bit more. And my understanding is there's a court date coming up in March. I believe it's March 16th, at which point we could get a little bit more clarity on where things stand and whether there will be any consequences as far as you know, McGuire's availability to the team. But from everything that we've heard so far, it sounds as though the Blue Jays are planning that he'll be able to break camp with the team, that he will be part of a, a timeshare of sorts with with Danny Jansen behind the plate and, and playing on a regular basis. So, it, you know, at this point, we don't necessarily know all the details. Maybe it's simply a poor decision that Reese McGuire will learn from. Maybe there are more details that, that will make this seem you know, worse or, or better as time goes on. I'm, I'm not sure. But the way the Blue Jays are proceeding, they appear to believe that it will be business as usual you know, in a relatively short period of time. I want to turn our attention to the bullpen for a second. Ken Giles really saw a resurgence last year. He went from having an ERA and a FIP in the fours to a 187 ERA and a 227 FIP. His strikeout rate went way up, though he also started walking a bunch more guys. So I'm curious what changed for him last year. And and I know it's rude to ask you to predict uh, bullpen performance because it's just inherently mean. But what do you expect from him in 2020? As for what changed with Giles, I do think that getting out of Houston was a good thing for him. And he seems to really enjoy being in Toronto. He seems to to enjoy playing here a lot and, and potentially would have an openness to staying here beyond 2020 when, when he'll be a free agent after this year. But getting out of Houston, uh, where he clearly did not see eye to eye with A.J. Hinch, that was a good thing for him. And so now he's in Toronto where he has that comfort level. And the results were great last year. I mean, he was, when he was on the mound, he was, he was really effective. There were some stretches there where he, he missed some time on the injured list, but when he was out there, he, he was, he was great. And I would expect that to continue as far as expectations for 2020. I, I mean, I'd be stunned if he struck out less than one batter per inning. I, I think he's a very safe bet to have a good home run rate, have a good walk rate. And, that should add up to, you know, an ERA around two and, and probably a lot of saves too. So to me, he's an, an elite reliever. The one variable to watch there is just how he responds to back-to-back -back days. I mean, he had some issues with that last year, but the Blue Jays have no reason to be, to, to overexert Giles. I mean, if he goes back to back and he needs a few days off, that's that's fine. They can they can do that. And by all accounts, he's fully healthy as far as the elbow going into this season. So something to watch for because it was a, a bit of an issue in 2019. But I see no reason to expect him to be anything less than a very effective reliever in 2020. 
This is a, a fun and young and exciting team, and sadly it just got harder to watch for folks in Canada. We learned that the MLB TV blackout is going to extend to the entire country, no matter how geographically far from Toronto a fan might be. What is the recourse that fans have here? What is the team's response to this decision, Ben? Because I can't imagine they're thrilled to have uh, fewer fans able to access their games than they had previously. Well, MLB TV is a great product, obviously. And for a while here in Canada, it was, it was next level because you would have MLB TV and there were no blackouts. You could watch any game. So that's the, that's the starting point for this discussion and things are shifting. So now the games are available on Sportsnet now, which is a streaming service offered by Sportsnet rather than one that's available through MLB TV. So this means that that's where Blue Jays fans have to go to get the streaming rights to these games. And that's obviously a big a big change, especially at a time that a lot of people are streaming their games. That's becoming a, a, a really common way for people to, to watch. And fans, in some cases, are expressing their displeasure over this and, and expressing that this is... Uh, you know, an unwelcome change. So that's that's definitely something that I've noticed on social media, and that's understandable on the part of those uh, on the part of those fans. You know, I, I I think big picture, going beyond the this instance in particular, big picture, you want fans to be able to watch baseball. And just as a as a fan of the game, I'm someone who always wants people to be able to connect with it. And so that's that's always a difficult situation when you have people who want to watch and want to listen and who aren't able to connect with the game or with their team in those ways. I wanted to ask you one question. This is not a, a season preview question, but recently Tony Fernandez passed away and we have not discussed that on the podcast, but after he died, there was such an outpouring of appreciation for him as a player and a, a person that I wondered if you could sort of sum up what he represented, what he meant to the Blue Jays organization and why fans were so broken up about that news. Well, yeah, 57 years old, I think, when he passed. So way too young and, and someone who had a, a really significant legacy here in, in Canada and, and with the Blue Jays. You look at four stints with the team, kind of a, a Ricky Henderson-like history here in Toronto and with the Blue Jays, someone who, who just kept coming back. And, and you look at an offensive player who was really good, someone who defensively was viewed as a tremendous defender who would have this sidearm throwing motion that was pretty pretty distinct and and set him apart and really won over a lot of fans here and I think you know especially you look at his prime season so this is the late 80s and when I was looking at this the other week there was a six-year stretch in there where he was essentially the Blue Jays everyday shortstop and I look back at, at the numbers and you know, not only was he this gold glove winning shortstop who who was really a, a defensive stabilizer up the middle, but he was a really good hitter too. So you add it up and he averaged, I think, four and a half wins above replacement per season for that stretch of time. And that's a six year period. So to, to put that in context, I looked on, on fan graphs to try to see which shortstops had averaged four and a half wins for the last six years? And it's a list of two. It's it's only Francisco Lindor and Manny Machado who have actually done that. So you know that's that's the level that Fernandez played at in his peak, and he ended up returning to the Blue Jays as uh, as uh, an infielder in 1993 when they won their second of two back to backs and returned again later on. So he he had a, a long legacy here 
in Toronto, someone someone who's definitely missed already, and and you know a real icon, I think, when it comes to the Blue Jays teams, especially those late '80s Blue Jays teams that were the first ever good Blue Jays teams. I mean, up until then, they were this expansion team. Then you get guys like Jesse Barfield and George Bell and Tony Fernandez. All of a sudden, you have an actual contender, and he was a big part of that resurgence or, or a part of that initial run of, of real contending teams in Toronto. Yeah, it's still franchise leader in some statistical categories. And you're right, in those early years, his glove was so good and he did get hurt. He had some injuries and then he had some kind of chronic issues that contributed to his death. But before all of that set in, he was on a potential Hall of Fame trajectory. He was just a really special player at that point. So we will wrap up, as always, by asking you for a win total prediction. Well, I do think they're up for a big increase. Their pitching staff is way better. Their offense should be better as well. And they're not going to have those games started by guys off the scrap heap, so to speak. So I think you add that up, you you should be looking at a team that at least is in the high 70s for win totals and maybe a little bit better than that. I'll go with 81 and 81 for my 2020 prediction. And long term, is there optimism? I mean, you're in this division with the big bad Yankees and the Red Sox and the Rays who are really good again. And the Orioles are atrocious now, but if all goes according to their plan, perhaps they will be pulling out of that at some point as the Blue Jays improve as well. So I guess, is there sort of a fatalism of, oh, we're stuck in this division with these giants and this super innovative team, and it's hard to have a sustained run of success there? Or are people hopeful because of this young trio in particular? At least as far as I can tell, the fan base here is excited. I I think that the signing of Ryu was significant on a couple levels for that. Good pitcher shows that the team is willing to spend. So I I think that's a a, a significant step. And then also you have this young core of players. They're pretty fun to watch. Vladdy, Bo, um, Kevin Biggio. This is actually a pretty fun group to watch. And you can imagine that they might take significant strides. So who knows? I mean, this is the spring training. It's the time for optimism. We we might have a very different impression of this group in a few months. But at this point, as we as we talk now, there is optimism around this team. And even if it doesn't convert into a contender right away, you can see their trajectory. You can see that, okay, this 95 loss thing is not permanent. They are going to step forward to some extent. And it'll be interesting to see how far they can go this year. All right. Well, you can follow the Blue Jays thanks to Ben at Sportsnet. You can also hear him at Sportsnet in addition to reading him. And you can find him on Twitter at B. Nicholson Smith. Ben, thank you again. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Meg. Anytime. All right, quick programming note. A couple of weeks from now, Meg and I are planning to interview the authors of two new novels about baseball, Gish Jen, who wrote the book The Resisters, and Emily Nemmins, who wrote the book The Cactus League. So if you're interested in doing a little Effectively Wild book club and reading those books to prepare for the podcast, go check them out. Just letting you know in advance in case you would enjoy the interviews more if you've already read the books. That will do it for today and for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. If you do that now, you still have time to be one of our patrons in March. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Jeff Good, Matt
Matthew Hanses, Tony Adams, Megan Wallace, and Nicholas Gleason. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments from me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are already a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back with another episode early next week, tentatively on the Nationals and the Royals. Talk to you then. Oh,